Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of The Loud Ones Podcast. I'm your lovely host, Nasby, and I am Danny B. <laughs> and today we have a special guest with us, and I'm gonna let her introduce herself. Hi, I'm Cleo Mizrahi, and I go by she, they, and queen. Yes. Okay. Yes. So, um, this week's episode is definitely going to be a really interesting one and one that we've been wanting to cover for a very long time. So, Cleo, I want you to just give our listeners some background and then we can talk about what it is we're going to be doing today because I'm just, I'm really excited about it. Me and Danny have been really excited about this. Sure. So, um, I'm Cleo Mizrahi. Um, I come from a Middle Eastern Jewish family um, in New York City. And I was approached by these two lovely ladies about the experiences of leaving an Orthodox Jewish community and then added the intersections that people face, like me being queer or being trans, um, coming from a certain class. And then there's people don't really know, but even within New York City, there's a little bubble of um, people who leave the Orthodox community, despite the big Orthodox Jewish communities that are there, and their voices are not heard. And it's very similar to a lot of people who leave um, communities of faith um, because of, for various reasons, both bad and good, and are struggling to gain support and um, to be able to get the rights that they deserve in our country. So, thank you. So, um, Yes, guys, we wanted to definitely dive in and talk and talk about um, what it is to be an Orthodox Jew and leaving a community like an, like the Jewish community. And we being that we're New Yorkers, we know and recognize there's a lot of uh, Jewish communities throughout New York City. And so I really have been interested just to learn about what your experience is growing up, what it was like. Uh, transitioning out of that community and uh, some of the obstacles that you faced and we can talk about so many more things but this is just I wanted you guys to just get insight because it's not very common to meet someone like you and have an opportunity like this right so um for our listeners and just for us and educating our listeners what is an orthodox Jew and what does it mean to be orthodox Sure. So every religion has its various denominations from uh, Christianity to Islam to even Judaism. Now, in the spectrum of Judaism, um, surprisingly, there's a small percentage of Jews in America, um, like elsewhere, that are considered Orthodox. They're mm. considered like 20%, if not less, of the Jewish community at large, but they're a very powerful community mm -hmm. um, that has often gated, uh, gatekeeped for many people like in Israel um, and also in their insular communities in terms of um, the rights that people get to have. Um, so orthodoxy is a it's a spectrum in itself as well. Mm -hmm. You have the Hasidic Jews, mm -hmm. the Jews that you mostly see with the curls and the fur mm -hmm. hat. They come from a movement in the 1800s in Eastern Europe. Um, I was an AP Jewish history major. Ah, um, I like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there was, long story short, there was a lot of Jews that were moving into Western societies and becoming more secular. And as a result, these Jews in Eastern Europe were fearful that their faith was dying. Mm -hmm. So they had a big rabbi named the Baal Shem Tov mm -hmm. who 
created this Hasidic movement to make their community more steadfast. So they branched out all over Eastern Europe and mostly Russia. And before World War II and also in World War I, the majority of them left and came to America. Uh So America was one of the first um, places during that time that was a safe place for Jews to go. And that's why you have a million plus Jews in the tri-state area. And they've created their own insular communities, like many other communities, Puerto Rican, the Italians, the Albanians, but they really didn't want to be part of secular society. They were not interested. They've created their own economy. They've created their own schools. Oh, yes. So you have <laughs> oh, those. We, we you have know those, this. You have those. And then obviously the racism and the queer phobia and the sexism, like that comes with isolation. And then among Orthodox Jews, you have in the middle, which are also Orthodox, um, are just black hat, Orthodox Jews, they're called Litvak Jews, which is Yiddish for Lithuanian, uh-huh. because their rabbis didn't agree with the Hasidic Jews. They thought they were too uh, extreme, and that out as a result, they were going to believe in false messiahs, which you do see in the Hasidic movement. They designate each rabbi, and they think there's something anointed about them. Um, and then you have the stream that I was more a part of. It was called Modern Orthodoxy, mm-hmm. which also started in America um, a few decades ago. And it was a result of Orthodox Jews who wanted to also have a place in secular society. Mm-hmm. So their be- tenets of the beliefs is uh, Madava Torah, which in Hebrew means science and Torah. Mm-hmm. Um, and Torah is, you know, the Hebrew word for the Bible, the yeah. Old Testament. So despite all of them might having a different way they do customs and might be a little bit different on their political thinking because Hasidic Jews for the most part um, are anti-Zionist, anti-Israel. Orthodox Jews, they're not anti-the state, they're not anti-Israel like uh, Hasidic Jews, but they're anti-the secular establishment. Mm -hmm. While modern Orthodox feel that it needed an uh, a state government like the early uh, Jews that were leaving uh, persecution uh-huh. in Europe. Uh-huh. I know it's a lot of history. Listen, I get I'm, I'm actually no, I super think, intrigued that, right now. Like, No, I, I'm super intrigued because I also studied uh, Judaism. But what's interesting is it gives us a good foundation to start sure. on. Sure. Yes. So, and to wrap it up, basically, you know, modern Orthodox Jews has a very strong stance on um, Israel as a state, as a country, it becomes their nationalism in a way. So it was very weird and interesting being first generation American um, to a Middle Eastern Jewish family in a community that's white and you're queer and you're told to uphold a country that you don't live most of your life um, and being strong and okay with that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it felt very much like for me as a child. Uh, sorry, before I go off, um, it just simply to define orthodoxy again. So you see the spectrum in there, but orthodox Jews define themselves as Jews who live literally by the word of the Bible. Okay. Now, each of their rabbis have a different interpretation, like everyone has their own interpretation of what the Bible or the holy text means. So for me in my community, um, growing up in the Lower East Side, it was a mix of being that's a predominantly 
um, it's famous to being a melting pot for immigrants. And the Lower East Side was a failed government project. It's where they threw all the minorities when they came off of Ellis Island and they didn't know where else to put them. So the Blacks, the Asians, the Puerto Ricans, the Jews, all were thrown there in the late 1800s. Um, and they've stayed there ever since and still had their little communities. And I grew up in the 90s when my mother came. Like, So we were kind of new, but we were kind of part of this isolation slash growth um so my community the jewish community was mostly white mostly upper class at this point mm -hmm. and we're a mix of hasidic jews um the lithuanian jews who are orthodox and then the modern orthodox jews um and then obviously there was a little fabulous me in there yes. so. Um, so there's a term that you used consistently throughout those definitions and i just want to have you define it for sure. our listeners so you mentioned the word secular yes so i just want you to go into more of what does it mean to be secular oh, girl. just please <laughs> Because that's been a scary word that was placed on anyone who's um, orthodox. Um, surprisingly, as much as I grew up in yeah. New York, I lived in a bubble. I went to school with only Jewish people. I went to a temple in a community only Jewish people. Everyone, I lived more in the poor black and brown, you know, diverse community, vibrant community of Puerto Ricans and um, Dominicans and black people and still my neighborhood. And I had more kinship with them, being that my family is of Arab Jewish descent, uh -huh. which is often not recognized in the larger American Jewish context, despite being like close to a half a million people who live in Brooklyn and Queens who are of Middle East or North African descent, but we're still a minority within a minority. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. So I very much had a bubble. I had ideas placed in me that you cannot trust non-Jewish people. You cannot trust the secular world. I was also taught at the same time about myself that um, if you're not Orthodox, you're not Jewish. If you're not... Um, you know, cisgender or heterosexual, you're an abomination, um, you know, and then there were all certain political ideas of like, you know, the Republicans are right and anything that stands in terms of nationalism for the country of Israel, it was, there was a lot of political ideologies that are placed in the religion that sheltered me and scared me from leaving the bubble that I knew that even to the point when I came to college when i was first time in school in a non-jewish environment um it was in my modality to think that i could only find community amongst jewish people and i really really struggled because at that point i was it was back in 2013 i went to cuny um i was leaving what cuny did you go to i went to hunter and brooklyn college i did a cuny ba program an interdisciplinary studies program in media and gender studies um so I yeah went to brooklyn college i told you that already oh cute yes so very aware of, that's like and there's yeah, a lot of orthodox jews in the, there yes yeah. smacked into a huge jewish community so, that must have um, been really hard like you know transitioning when you know you went to college to it's like basically an eye-opener being surrounded by one type or one one um type of people i don't want to say like sure. you know, your your whole community just being only jewish and then you having to step out and be in a community where everybody is different. But before you um, respond to Danny, I know we 
kind of got off track with the definition of secular. I only want to make sure that you define it, and I don't want sure. To- I'm very. Um, I kind of like extend the conversation, which brings context to mm-hmm. it. But secular was, I would say, simply is not religious, um, not us, mm. bad. Basically, okay. the the world that we're not supposed to be a part of. We're often taught um, for both good and bad reasons that because until Jews really came to America, um, and I mean, still you see rising anti-Semitism everywhere. And there was a deadly shooting in Jersey City, and there have been mm-hmm. attacks in Brooklyn and Muncie, mostly at the Orthodox community as well as Jews of every uh, different you know denomination. Um, what has kept the orthodox community to have power over their people is by reminding them that whenever they are attacked they said this is a reminder that you can't trust people just like any of us are told that you know we can't trust this race we can't trust that group and it's the way that they do control you say you remember how it feels that we were discriminated or we were denied or this and there is there's some you know there's this um What's it called? Um, anthropologist or psychologist says this like cave mentality that as humans, we stick to the group that we know. Yeah. But at the same time, the problem with that is the more you segregate, the more ignorant you become and the less enlightened. Yeah. And when you don't know how to live amongst other people, you don't know how to evolve and create peace. Um, so Danny was t- mentioning and talking about okay, how air. <laughs> the, the transition that you must have made going into a non-Jewish specific college. So before, I guess, get talking about that transition, do you, and I know you briefly mentioned some of your upbringing, but yeah. can you go a little deeper into your upbringing? And so I think that will help us better understand the transition that sure. you had to make in that huge um, impact those changes had on you. So Sure. So I, I would first say that, um, so my mother, um, she was born in Israel and um, she, in some extent, defied her religious expectations because what kept her family stable and safe when they came and immigrated from Yemen in 1950, because in 1950 to 1960, one million Jews from Arab and Muslim countries came to Israel. And there was the Israeli establishment was trying to break down the, if you know this word, Mizrahi, which Mm -hmm. is Hebrew from uh, Easterner, Mm -hmm. which is also a word like I would say the N word that was uh, reclaimed. Mm -hmm. It was, it was stigmatized to represent Jews who weren't white and who weren't Western and advanced. Um, and that's what the government called all these Jews who had different experiences and haven't met each other for centuries. So the, a lot of religious communities, just like in America anyway, the way they kept their resources and kept it together is by create, trusting their own. So that was put on my mother. And my mother brought that mentality that the way she found safekeeping when she came to America and she met my dad and they had a really bad divorce was um, she found refuge in a religious community because it was what she knew. And that's how she had access to resources that eventually helped her to housing, eventually helped her to get me and my brother to go to these schools, top schools, to basically be um, in a safe environment. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So I grew up with my mother and my brother. My parents split when I was about one. Um, my father was your dad also Jewish. My father's Jewish, but he comes from the European Jewish background, mm. while my mother comes from a Middle Eastern. But because I grew up with my mother, the tradition says that you must follow the customs of your mother, which was weird and interesting because, like, again, how I felt othered was, you know, I'm being taught one way to recite you know, the prayers or to eat or to act or certain traditions while at the same time you go to a synagogue that's mostly white um, and, you know, Americanized and then going to school where you're the brown queer kid and you don't fit in. So um, back then it was very harmful of being the person that was different, but it took me years later to value that because that difference allowed me to look outside the community. Mm-hmm. So you know, I remember we had this beautiful memory where um, a local mother on our um, floor, you know, was able to engage with us in a conversation over similar cultures. And she didn't understand us being Jewish because she assumed we were white like everyone else. And we were like, no, we're actually have our own customs and things. And that allowed and being that there's a lot of similarities between Arab and Latinx and black culture. I made all these friends that were outside of my community, even growing up religious. Yeah, I was going to ask you And then eventually, when I was like 14, I went to the Educational Alliance, which is a really renowned nonprofit that first catered to the immigrant Jews that now services all types of people. And I was like, in a nonprofit that was made by Jews, I was the only Jewish teen there. Mm -hmm. And all my friends were from all walks of life. And they got to learn about me and I got to learn about them. So... There were moments that even in my bubble, I was the place that I actually felt valued was outside of my community. So that actually started for me. And then when I came to college, I wasn't completely new to compared to some people who are very sheltered. Yes. I wasn't completely new about terms and slang and certain community, but I still had in the back of my mind that where I would fit best is my own, which despite how many times I tried, it was hurtful and painful to remind myself that I'm not like them. They are white. They're mostly upper class. Um, They are not queer and not always queer friendly and this was a secular college with secular Jews but our racial and class difference and gender really created a divide that again my friends became people who were from all types of walks of life who were also seen as the other and just wanted to celebrate their individuality so there was a really strong and difficult transition for me to come into the Jewish community again to Mm -hmm. see community as I was leaving and to start branching out versus now I feel that I have the power I could step into these communities and know that I won't be accepted and embraced by everyone but I also don't need them to that was a very powerful thing to saying I get to decide who gets to be part of my circle and being able to make boundaries and saying I'm not compromising or changing myself to be accepted and then also knowing that I'm not a box I am a kaleidoscope and with a kaleidoscope means that I could my experience allows me to step into um, some um, different ethnic spaces different racial spaces different spiritual spaces i became more open-minded and enlightened and more into the values of celebrating humanity and seeing us the same so you know 
Some New Yorkers are so open. We could just talk about anything on the train and we're strangers. And some people are so strange. And I'm like, we're all human. I yeah. mean, by the end of the day, we have this, we have a very a, exact same like genetic makeup, except like our DNA. Um, mm-hmm. We have the same heart, same body. You know, there's different like little changes, but we need, we should come together because we're all being challenged in similar so, ways. Your mom, was she accepting of your friends from different backgrounds? No, my mother, my mother allowed me to be friendly with people in other communities, but she still had this impression that, um, you know, she didn't want me whenever. And also my brother, who is not religious at all compared to me, who's someone who's more spiritual, um, to have friends at all who that are not Jewish. Um, and that also came with certain ignorance, but also, you know, it's weird because she was working in a community of all types of people, but my mother, you know, to give her a little bit credit, you know, she's not, she's not a, she's not a bigot. She's not a hateful person compared to other Orthodox people in the Jewish community. She just feels safe with what she knows. And she is a religious woman. So in her interest, you know, she engages with people in the outside world um, <laughs> okay. um, but she's a hairstylist and she has people from all over, but you know, her faith makes her surround herself by people with the similar, um, background. Now she might've been more welcomed in some spaces because, you know, she has the privilege of being cisgender and heterosexual, but she doesn't realize that when I was a child, I always felt that we were exoticized. You know, people would come to us and want to eat our food and eat our culture, be entertained by us, but not involve us in their lives as much or... I was I was actually going to get into that because I was wondering, because, you know, like... There speak is, up, Danny. I'm sorry. There are some... Um, I know that there are some... Uh, Jewish establishments that will hire black and other minorities um, in their establishment but won't welcome them Mm. like in their community sure so we can work for you and we can make you money but you're not we're not of us we're not you're not one of us and it even gets to a point where you know if they're your manager or they own the establishment they almost feel like they can treat you um, differently, even though I'm I'm the one that's making your business run so smoothly. Mm-hmm. So that's very much how I felt growing up to a hardworking single parent mother, immigrant, who I would always say, for example, my mother, her side business was mending wigs for the Orthodox women in her neighborhood and selling products for them. And now they spend on average a few thousand dollars for those wigs. And my mother would charge these women $35 for a short cut and blow and dry and then $40 for a long wig. And I always challenged my mother and I said, you need to raise your prices. Absolutely. And she would tell me she would have this mentality thinking that they helped me. So I need to lower my value. (laughs) I want to say I watched this uh, documentary that um, Oprah did uh, when she went into the Orthodox community Mm -hmm. um, uh, in Brooklyn. Hidden communities. Um, She went into. And Mm -hmm. there was a segment where they had talked about the wigs and they went wig shopping. And the cheapest wig in that store was $600. Mm-hmm. 
and she went to a cheaper wig store what on average these wigs are like one to three thousand dollars now me being black and danny and i wearing wigs we do weaves I can't imagine what a $3,000 wig is. I think the only time I've seen someone wear that is like one that there's an artist named Tokyo Styles. Uh-huh. He did one for like Nikki when she used to wear the long yeah. 40. So, but I can't imagine I, I'm us. I'm not going to lie. Because like, I would, honestly, if I had a friend who was of the Orthodox Jewish community and had to buy wigs, I would put them on like, listen, girl, go on AliExpress, get a cheap one. If you really, But you really know what's crazy? You know what's crazy? Because why, a lot of so the time, specific about I'll those you, wigs and why sure. they're but so you, Do you know, want to know something? A lot of the times, like, and I'm not trying to be funny, like, the wig doesn't even look of like great quality. It's like, clearly wiggish. Some of them. I'm not trying to say it like that, but we have wigs. <laughs> It's coming back for us but we have wigs where it's like okay as long as your lace front is laid whatever the case is and you not like smacked in my face like mm-hmm. it's believable yeah. but I've I went to Brooklyn College so a lot of the female teachers a lot of the students I'd be like okay like it's sitting on top and you didn't even try to so I'll tell you straighten it up. so I'll explain so um, there is a halakha which in Hebrew you know is like the law of the Torah um, that a woman who is married um, is not allowed to show her virgin hair right and that her hair is so sensual that it needs to be only for her husband and um but that also is interpreted in different ways because the hasidic women um that you see so that oprah went into a community of Labavitch, or also known as Chabad Jews who live in Crown Heights, and they are mostly Jews that we consider like emissaries. They're very into like getting people to follow the way they believe. Mm-hmm. They think it's their holy mission to make all the Jews in the world like them. Now, they're more open-minded than other versions of Hasidic Jews who are more extreme. So they, the women, do have a more modern style, the way they look, versus the ones that are in Williamsburg, the way they have their hair is they typically have this just bland hair and they cover it up with this like wriggly ugly hat because or scarf scarf. and you know it's similar some of the scarves is similar to like how you would see with certain black women you know if like you just want to cover up your hair whether it was a bad hair day but for them they take it more to the extreme where they were like we know we're supposed to have a wig, but we're not going to even make it look pretty versus there are other women that they're like, this is something I want to show off who I am, which, you know, some of us laugh at it. It's like, if you're supposed to be modest, but some, for some of these women, they look 10 times beautiful um, with this hair. Yeah. You're like, aren't you defeating the purpose? Yeah. Right. So these women you know their lives were made around being a good mother and there's only a few things that they invest in they invest in their homes they invest in the food they invest in what they dress and then they invest in their wigs other than that these women do not do fancy trips to florida and hawaii and they also you know invest in like religious items for their family like the money is invested in the religion Mm -hmm. um and these women this is a 
something in the religion that allows them to celebrate their femininity, um, which I always got to see because, you know, being a young child, my mother would get five to ten wigs in these beautiful, like, Versace bags, you know, that looks like little bird cages, and she would do it one, two, three, four, and then I would have to go in the neighborhood and drop it off. Um, and some of the styles are very, like, old school, like yeah. the 50s, because yeah. it... Because it, for them, that looks to them a little bit more conservative. And a lot of younger women have, like you, a little bit more curvy, yeah. more, you know, fluid, more, I would say even like voluptuous, you yeah. know, like a little bit more like a sex appeal to it. So even in that, there's been a generational change. I wanted to, I guess, clarify. So is this, are the wigs that the Orthodox Jew or Jewish women wear, are they made any differently than a wig that Danny and I might purchase? And what what makes them more Is it like valuable? Less, sure. Exactly. I, I want to know like, what makes them more valuable. Sure. So it you could you could tell like being that you both wear weaves and extensions or yeah. whatever you might purchase, you know, of good quality versus a not mm -hmm. good quality. And I actually saw a really interesting video not long ago um, from Refinery about the hair industry and where people from America buy wigs and weaves and what is considered good when it's like virgin hair and what is considered toxic and bad when plastic and other animal testing is put in mm -hmm. or taken in a um, abusive way because there's countries in Asia where young girls, you know, this is their only way to live and they're cutting off their hair versus people who force people to like give up parts of their hair um, as a way of surviving or mixing it with like other chemicals. So it varies between families. Like if they have more money, they will, the reason why they put more money in the wigs is because they want to have a few wigs that are durable. So the average, like in my neighborhood, the women made like six, um, you know, six figures added with their husband's income. So they would get like three, four wigs in different styles, short, long. They would have like one that's short to like be ready to go that looks, you know. So they hand make the wigs? Um, not personally. My mother does make wigs, but they do get to have um, it. Mostly they want to have um, real hair and they do have it styled for different occasions. So they have like a curly hair like yours, let's say like blonde or red or brown for like a wedding or for a bar, a bat or b'nai mitzvah, um, an occasion like that celebrate, I could be more beautiful. Then they have something that's very short on the go. Um, and then they have like something that's in between with more of a bang that, um, that gives them like a little bit more modern style when they go to synagogue. It depends versus every community. So, um, okay. I, I'm kind of taking aback right now. Like, <laughs> I know. Okay, so I have a question, and it might sound crazy. Sure. I, and Danny, before I ask you, Cleo, have you ever seen a Jewish hair salon with the clientele being Orthodox Jew? I've never. I've never. So where do they go? Like, how do you... Sure. Like, do, so, do, their hair, do, do they do it at home? Even, or, even before... Because they the, can't show their hair. So it, I wonder... And, you know, I'm thinking about the, the windows, you know. Yeah, and I could so take a tour with you. So this is why I'm like, I'm so curious. Sure. You know, what's even, even more absurd to me is that you got, like, I don't, like... Um, they don't believe in secular society, but you're wearing 
secular hair. Mm. This you're is something wearing, you're wearing Indian hair. I'm confused. So like. that's 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 that's, <laughs> no, you're that's the criticism of like this religion amongst others is like this is like the, this is the unkosher thing you're doing, right? So you know, and you kind of laugh. You're like everything's Jewish and kosher about you, and then you wear a hair that's not considered Jewish. So in terms of the Orthodox communities, like in Brooklyn or in Queens, they have. Um, some of the stores are completely blocked and only for women and they make appointments and they come in and it's people in their community because they cannot have men from the public to see them um so other women can see your hair right just not other men not other men and okay. when you're taking especially when they're taking it off and showing whether they don't have hair or their virgin hair so where my mother comes in that she had a very successful business is you know she is um jewish she's understands the orthodox world and she gives them permission to come privately into her home where she gets to do it on their terms um, a price that works for them so that's how basically but, but everyone you and your brother couldn't be around because then they'll climb they can't even though hair, my right? gender is like you know who i am today you know my mother still for whatever their sake because they also have their insecurities yeah i would have to stay in my room whenever the client would come like the house would be turned into a mini salon and it was very uncomfortable being like i need to go to the bathroom you know yeah. and at this point i really don't care because i'm paying rent and i need to go up and go and like also my gender has nothing to do with your clients um especially if i'm female identified and always female identified but um you know um these um my mother basically everyone in the orthodox world in new york city knows my mother again it's really sad that she never really valued herself more because my mother was always struggling to pay rent for the two of us in an affordable housing while these women live in these fancy condominiums and um, don't give enough to the value for the hard workers and they think they could get away with it because they think oh she's an immigrant she's of color you know um, she's already giving us a lower price and uh, we could always threaten her and say we'll go somewhere else which no one's gonna give her no one going to give these women that quality of service my mom is really top notch really from what she went to like the top schools in new york city that's not what she came for she came from a family where she went to a seminary after high school which was even college and she got a teacher certificate and her life was set for her to be a teacher in the school system and then her life changed where she had to leave the world for safety reasons and also her marriage didn't work out and she had to find another way to survive right and hair was was the first thing she went into and that's still her business today so um you said a few things and i'm so and we have many other topics to talk about I besides know, the so, wigs girl and so, this is all real by the way you see no wig all all virgin honey okay <laughs> you're funny <laughs> i'm not gonna take my wig off to do that this is <laughs> I'm gonna be like, I have, I have my. So I'm sorry. I'm, I'm not gonna follow Cleo. I think that deserves that. a bad girl. I'm sorry. Not me. This is laid, and that is that. That is on that. Um, so, <laughs> this is all good. So uh, we'll be yeah. coming off. Um, so we want also wanted to talk about like sexism in the community. Mm -hmm. So like. Um, basically what was 
So the role of the woman, as you said, was to stay home and take care of the family. And the role of the man is to, I guess, provide the money. The bread and butter. Yes. So does so as a man in the community like just like say your father or like just um brother whatever whatever the case may be they have basically like control over what is done yes so again remember that even amongst orthodox jews that small percentage the spectrum of orthodoxy that the more modern it is the more the expectations are more liberal so for me you know the typical modern orthodox family you would be able to go to college, but you'll be that outsider who's orthodox. Uh, you would get a nine to five job outside of your community and be able to advance yourself in any way. The females. Um, female, male, non-binary, okay. like okay, whatever. Cool. But then the more orthodox you go, like outside of that little strip of um, orthodoxy, which is like within that 25% is probably like 10. Like, I, I, I don't know the numbers, but it's very small. The majority of the orthodox community, the men go straight, they are straight into yeshivas their schools um to learn for their whole life a lot of them live on welfare a lot of them um uh, we have to that. or they or they have they're part of their own economies where they um you know they work in a bakery or they work in a, a keychain shop or whatever it is but they don't move outside because they have a very not only sexist mentality and racist and xenophobic that they do not engage at all with the outside world. And there's hundreds of thousands of ultra-orthodoxy. That was the word I needed. Ultra-orthodoxy, which is the Hasidic and the other streams, the Lithuanian, and then modern, which is completely different in the way they dress and act. So I was way more exposed to liberal world, but I was in a more conservative neighborhood and also my family. My mother and father left ultra-orthodoxy. So they left ultra-orthodoxy and they became modern orthodox. And I left all that and I became more, you know, egalitarian. So with the ultra-orthodoxy, they would not talk to you at all. The men would not talk to you because you're both women and added black women. Um, and then the role for the women is, um, again, for the Hasidic world and also the old, other parts of ultra-Orthodox world, they're basically trained um, to become wives. Hasidic women stop at 15, their education. Um, they are already- that work here legally that is the that is the fight that people who left the orthodox world are there's an organization called yafed that are trying to push for um healthy liberal arts education in orthodox schools because as much as all these religious schools function in new york city what the way they deceive us is they are taking our tax money they're getting city funding and government funding and they lie to the secular public and telling us that they're using it for um you know food for the needy you know mm -hmm. and then you find out that this principal in williamsburg is using it to cater for fancy events um absolutely or you know they say they're doing it for housing but then they do it only for within their community and they're gentrifying and they won't include black and brown people oh yeah like those communities yeah. um what is that bay ridge mm -hmm. or um wherever it's like by the water beautiful mm -hmm. those homes are absolutely beautiful mm -hmm. yes they are gorgeous and they don't they do not they do it's not see, want anyone that is not brooklyn college that whole community 
there's a bunch of like mini mansions back there. Yes. And well, some of them bought, you also have to think that a lot of the people in the Orthodox community, just like in the, my neighbor Lori's side, a lot of them, they were bought generations ago and the price was different and added, they kept giving it to their kids and their kids or people in their community. So they have like their own real estate and mm-hmm. exchange rate that they do within New York City, mm-hmm. which my family was never a part of because no one wanted to as much as my mother thought she was fully accepted she will not realize in the way i was educated we were always brown to them we were always poor to them and then the fact that she is kind of orthodox but she's divorced she has that stigma that stigma so oh. she had that stigma that she also had to play a different role that there is a topic of women who are divorced in religious communities and the reason why my mother stayed in America which I never understood because all of her family was in Israel because she as much as she liked her faith she knew she would not be as welcomed and celebrated because of the stigma and in Israel where the Orthodox Jews have more power in the government they have their own rabbinical courts like in America but it was part of the fabric of the nation the state of Israel so if you are not an orthodox Jew you cannot get married divorce convert or have someone born into a Jewish family without them saying yes and Mm. if you are there is a very famous movie called The Get now the get a get in Hebrew means like a divorce contract so if you would want to get divorced from her and she's the man in the family, and he does not want to give it, you would have to go to a 100 rabbis to tell them that I'm in an abusive situation. I need to go to convince one person to be on your side is a lot of effing work. So this woman who's an Israeli director named Ronita Kabetz, she's like this Monica Bellucci of mm-hmm. Israel, gorgeous, um, flawless skin, her whole family, also Middle Eastern Jew, but her mother, not Orthodox, wanted to get divorced and couldn't because her husband wanted power over her. And that's what happened to my mother, where for eight years, while being in America, she was not legally divorced by my father. And because she respected the Orthodox way, she couldn't get remarried. She couldn't date again. She didn't get citizenship until I was eight years old. My mother was stuck while my father, you know, was moving on and living his Gallivanting. life. You know, he, like, has, yeah. he has his own story. So I'm still hear two sides of the story that I don't know. But I know he wasn't there. So, um, so yeah, in short, this actress made her whole film career about women not having civil courts to get divorced and it really raised the consciousness in israeli society um about her experience um and even in the end when she did win like she ended up losing because she was on her own against three rabbis against her abuser and she was excommunicated i actually wrote a play that you may or may not know about it's called l'chaim to dykes now l'chaim is like cheers and then dykes is like the stigmatic word for lesbians i was involved with an organization starting six years ago called, called footsteps Now, Footsteps is the only organization in America that supports Jews who want to leave the Orthodox world. 
and they have a community of a few thousand people. But even those that support is nothing to which will then touch into the challenges that help people have independent lives. People really have to be willing to compromise and lose. But I met a few years ago when I started coming in because even in that community, again, like I know they were white, I know they were Hasidic, I know they were more sheltered. So the people that I did find quick allies with were people who were also queer. And I met these five amazing women who were living dual lives, trying to get independence in the secular world, while also having to pretend to be orthodox because they were legally bound to their husbands. And eventually they all get excommunicated and lose custody of their children. So I made a play about these women supporting one who lost everything. And I did that for two years, and I have a residency at Judson Church. Um, it's a huge art venue in Washington Square Park. And people do not know that this society within New York, considered the most liberal city in the country, is denying women the rights to have custody, denying women to be able to leave, denying people to practice whatever version of their faith. Um, me personally, I was... Um, it was used against me um, in legal ways to claim that because I'm not religious as my family, that they have a reason to be able to discard me and they have a reason to be able to evict me. And I had to fight with a lawyer about that in terms of being able to say that, look, I'm Jewish in my own way. It doesn't mean that you get to define it, but this is religious discrimination. Now, I was lucky to be able to be informed and educated and have the legal support that was, you know, pro bono. I was also being discriminated for parts of my gender and parts of my orientation or whatever. But when you're living in these communities and you're told the only people you could trust and go to is people in your community and they are not deciding for your best interest. Any religious community, really, really sheltered community across boundaries, the biggest thing that they're thinking about is their reputation like a company. It's like their own HR. They will do whatever they can to silence the mole. Mm -hmm. And with that, um, people commit suicide. People um, are stuck in abusive marriages. People don't come out. People are um, trapped and don't know how to leave. Uh, here's another example. A few years ago, um, and it happens all the time, um, a Hasidic man um, saw that his kid, who was disabled um, with bruises, and found out that his kid is being sexually abused by his caretaker. Now, guess who the caretaker was? The caretaker was the son of one of the prominent Hasidic rabbis in the community. Of course, he was terrified of retaliation, but he looked past all that bullshit. And he said, this is my child. Mm -hmm. My child's in danger and taking advantage. And I need to go say something. And the first thing that the religious community said to him was, maybe you shouldn't make quick assumptions. Maybe there's another reason for it. They were not even giving a fuck about his child. They wanted to just... They knew who it was, and they knew that there was an abuser in the family. They wanted to silence it completely. At that point, he was so enraged, he went to the media, and it made him lose the, – the community made him lose contact with his family. 
It also affected the members of the family because of the shame and stigma of their father to affect whether the girls would be able to have a good matchmake for marriage, whether the guy would be able to go to a good school, whether anyone would willing to talk to them because they're afraid that these are people who talk. And he was kicked out and he lost uh, protecting his child. He was lucky to find people in my community who was a little bit more open-minded to be able to support him, but he was a very, very, very lucky case. And the women that I know, like me, where I am now, they had to wait years to tell their stories because they were so pressured by the opposing party who have all the money in the world to go use the civil courts to silence you. They will pay for the top-notch lawyers. Catholics are doing this. The Muslims are doing this. All these religious communities are using the system now to silence you so that anyone in the community gets a message, don't you dare ever try to defy us. And that's why this becomes a human rights issue. This is a huge effing problem in America or any Western society that says that we are split of religion and and state. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. we still have influence of white supremacy and Christianity and just religious control over people's freedoms of thought and expression and the way they live that it's not even about anymore that they say we acknowledge there are people not like us they want to control you completely so you don't even have an option to leave but their religion that's how much power religion has and in religious countries you would be killed for these parts of things yeah Mm -hmm. you know you would be your there's genital mutilation you know that's Mm -hmm. a smaller thing but in this community but you know there are people women who get excommunicated and get murdered um there it's i mean it's disgusting and scary and frightening and um again i people who not always who want to leave there are people who want to stay because they want to be religious, but feel like they have to leave for their safety. Or people like me who want to leave for other reasons, which you could go in. It sucks, but we had to lose a lot to be able to be able to be ourselves. And so, it's not an easy journey within New York. So I want to get into that. So yeah, when you first became curious and, and said, I'm different, mm-hmm. I want to explore... Um, my queerness if I, I i want i want to i want to i don't think you know i'm not i don't I, I don't i don't fit the typical mold of this person in this community yes when you first started having those thoughts and those feelings were you scared because of what could what your future might be or might not be and coming out and talking to your mom about this and, sure and so did you have one who did you confide in sure. how did you build up, I guess, the courage if you did have these conversations with family and and your mom. And what was the result of that? Um, I'm so glad you asked. So there's a lot of queer phobia, you know, in all these religious communities. Before I ever had words to define me, luckily I am so blessed to have different parts of my identities that there's clear definitions that affirms my experience. But before I had that, I always said that my upbringing was people labeled me before I even knew myself. Mm. So I was already called the, um, I'll curse as much as I hate these words because they're harmful. I was called faggot. I was called sissy. I was called tranny. I was called all these things in and out of the community. I was called 
Arab and dirty and terrorist. I was called dumb and stupid. I still have such a wounded child that now when I am more of myself and you would think you get to be more affirmed, we live in such a hateful world that I have to worry about what the other person thinks about me and appease them so that they don't harm me. That's what's happening in general to queer and trans people of color and the epidemic against us. And whenever, you know, as marginalized folks that we talk about our experiences, the people with power don't believe us.